A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. It comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Luke Savage, staff writer at Jacobin, Press Progress alumnus, and co-host of the Michael Moore theme podcast, Michael and Us, which hasn't actually been about Michael Moore since 2016 or so. Welcome to Shortcuts. Good to be back. Today on the show, the circus comes to town. And by town, I mean Quebec City. And by circus, I mean circus performers and, and also Pierre Polyevre. And the workers at TV Ontario are still on strike, with Steve Paken walking the picket lines, but... We've yet to see Pokeroo. I'm Jonathan Goldsby. This is Shortcuts, where we talk shit about the news. This episode is brought to you by Peter Shepard, Max Babine, Susan Kinneberg, Jen Thomas, David Schwab, Ryan Coleman, Pearl Lung, and the Sunshine Superman himself, Donovan. Hey there. My name is Donovan. I'm a playwright and political organizer from Toronto. I listen to Candleland because it provides thoughtful, independent journalism this country desperately needs, providing organized and fact-driven journalism, as well as critical analysis from an awesome slate of experts. It takes on topics from a fresh perspective that cuts through the crap. Keep up the good work and keep that content rolling. Tonight, Pierre Polyev took the convention stage for the first time as leader to rally the grassroots. You know, the most important job of any leader is to bring hope. And on Saturday, the delegates got down to the hard work of picking the policy priorities they want Polyev to campaign on. Ranging from vaccine mandates to energy transition to what some are calling disturbing and discriminatory policies targeting already vulnerable members of the 2S LGBTQ plus community. So... As the Globe's Shannon Proudfoot put it, 
The conservative convention in Quebec City kicked off on Thursday night with a musical extravaganza in which a man in a Tom Cruise mask and an Air Force uniform scaled the small scaffold, balanced sideways on his arms with his legs stretched out behind him, then played the theme from Top Gun on a guitar made over to look like a fighter jet. And thanks to the CBC's Kate McKenna, there's video. That's a real thing? Oh, man. So, obviously, listeners cannot see that, but it is as described. Political conventions always aspire to a a level of spectacle, and sometimes they achieve it. A a key element of any such event is creating images for broadcast that project the idea of popular enthusiasm for a party, and in particular for its leader. But often those leaders are like, you know, Aaron O'Toole. And the whole thing, you know, in those cases looks as transparently contrived as a circus performer in a Tom Cruise mask balancing on an F-14-shaped guitar. But when the bulk of a party's members actually feel passionate about their leader and see that person as offering a legitimate prospect of deliverance from the tyranny of the status quo, then you get headlines like these, which our producer Aviva collected from the National News Watch aggregator. Things like, conservatives are lining up behind Pierre Paul Lievre. Quote, they're getting behind something they believe in. Stephanie Levitz in the Toronto Star. Enough is enough for Pierre Paul Lievre and the conservatives on the rise. Shannon Proudfoot in the Globe and Mail. Pro-choice, gay father, Montrealer wife. Here's why conservatives think Pierre Polyevre can break through with Quebec voters. That's Althea Roche in the Toronto Star. And Justin Trudeau's luck appears to be running out. Campbell Clark in the Globe and Mail. And that's, of course, not even counting, like, you know, the actual explicitly right-wing press. So, so Luke, Pierre Polyevre seems to have the momentum of a runaway freight train. Why is he so popular? <laughs> Sorry, that was so funny that I got distracted from what I was going to say. That's okay. Give me a sec. Well, I think there are a number of things happening right now. I think one of them is just that there is an ongoing cost of living crisis, and the liberals, as the incumbent government, are obviously going to get the blame for that. Justin Trudeau, you know, has been uh, central to, well, he's been almost the entirety of the liberal brand, such as it is, since he became leader. You know, really, I think, you know, the, the shine didn't come off Trudeau recently. I mean, he's he's lost the popular vote in the last two elections. So now you throw a cost of living crisis into the mix. You know, this is starting to look like kind of a more structural shift in the opinion polling, uh, as opposed to something that the liberals can uh, can really turn around. The other thing that's going on, as you alluded to right off the top, is that the conservatives have, for the first time in, in living memory, really, a leader who inspires, you know, significant grassroots excitement. I mean, how many people did Pierre Polyev sign up when he ran for leader? Record numbers of people signed up, completely blowing away the opposition, you know, blowing away Jean Charest and, uh, and all of the others. So, I mean, I think, uh, I think you're right to say that the uh, enthusiasm at the conservative convention this time was a little more genuine from mm. you know, the, uh, the delegates there uh, as compared to, you know, similar convention under, uh, under Aaron O'Toole or, or Andrew Scheer. Probably can't really be separated from, you know, the issues he talks about and how he talks about them. But I also wonder if it isn't just simpler that partisans, you know, of any stripe, are t- especially in Canada, tend to be enraptured by the slightest hint of charisma. And, you know, often our media takes this cue from that and it gains its runaway freight train momentum on its own. Yeah, I mean, charisma is not exactly how I describe, uh, you know, Pierre Polyevre's peculiar quality. I do think he can be quite effective just on a political level, effective in the House of Commons, effective on the level of kind of 
rhetoric and messaging. Of course, anytime I watch him speak, I always have to remember I'm not the target audience for this. Before he was leader, I would watch his YouTube videos. He has this huge following on YouTube. Mm -hmm. We get hundreds of thousands of views. Those videos are just uncannily strange. There's something very sort of surreal about them. Like, they're very Tim and Eric. But here's what I can say. A lot of people would say these two men would have nothing in common. We have a liberal and a conservative, a Quebecer and a Westerner. But wait, both of them shared a passionate love for freedom. Don't matter if you're black or white, there's a difference between wrong and right. It's written down for all to read. That's the U.S. Constitution. It's all you need. If you haven't spent like a hundred thousand hours immersed in the kind of particular idioms of right-wing mm -hmm. YouTube, they're basically illegible. They're just going to come across as weird, but uh, they really do resonate with a certain uh, a certain segment. And I think that uh, you know, Polly Everett does have, at the moment anyway, a lot of support and enthusiasm uh, within the Tory grassroots. I think that's somewhat contingent on whether the uh, Tory poll numbers hold, because it was only a few months ago that their sort of average lead in the polls was five, six, seven percent, and it's now you know, as high as 12, 13, or even 14%. So it's very easy to be popular with the grassroots when you've got poll numbers like that. You know, the election's not going to be for another year, possibly, I would guess, I would wager, two years from now. So we'll uh, we'll see what happens then. Question for me was always like, can he, I guess the question for everyone, or question for, for himself and the people around him was, can he break out of that, I don't want to say the box, but I guess who the target, who his target audience was for years, people who were right-wingers who were very online and for whom his... What's the noun for oleogeneity, oleogenousness, who, who, for whom him being oleogenous was actually, uh, you know, a feature, not not a bug. And he does seem to have successfully transitioned into the sort of the stern dad archetype that, uh, as Jesse put it, a few years ago when he was running with Jordan Peterson in the New York Times of all places, only a, guy, a place that Canada could produce a guy like Jordan Peterson and how Canada sort of gravitates toward these paternalistic figures. But one reason, I mean, not not the major reason, but, you know, one reason, you can't, you can't really also separate the press coverage of this convention from the fact that the conservatives, you know, were picky about who got to attend, or at least by standards of how these things usually go. People like Nora Laredo, for, who was going to cover it for the Maple and the U.S.-based Real News, wasn't allowed in. Martin Lukic from The Breach was also not accredited. I believe Tasha Carradine, who's a conservative but who supported Jean Charest, was also not allowed in, whereas the rebel was accredited, which uh, has not consistently been the case over the years, but they got back. But if we back go to like this sort of the relatively mainstream conservative press, the explicitly conservative press, I do want to note something that a tweet of yours or an X of yours or whatever the fuck the noun is now <laughs> uh, brought to my attention, which was an episode of the National Post full comment podcast called The Working Class Inevitably Becomes Conservative, in which post-media columnist Brian Lilly taps... Daniel Hannon, the Lord Hannon of Kingsclear, for his insights into the proletariat. <laughs> First of all, there is no dishonor in resting on the support of the people who actually get stuff done and make things, right? I mean, the, 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 the people, you and I talk for a living, right? The, the, but but, but a, uh, uh, a country rests on the people who say little but do much. <laughs> So they recorded this at the convention where Lord Hannon was a guest speaker. Uh, professionally, he's a columnist for the Sunday Telegraph, the Washington Examiner, and others, uh, whom he bills through his company, King's Clear Consulting Limited, whose registered office is at the Old Vicarage on Fox's Lane in Newbury. Now, that's a blue-collar pedigree if ever I've heard one. Anyway, he loves how Polly Ever can speak to the masses. How 
brilliant to have a conservative politician who's been able to turn monetary policy into a popular cause. Right? And, and if he can do that in opposition, I would love to see him in office. I would say, yeah. just, just to interject oh, on yeah, that please, point, please. I would say there's a citation needed on that. Pierre Polyever has managed to turn monetary policy into a popular cause. It's this amazing thing where, as we said, like he's, in one hand, Polyever is speaking to, he's speaking to the issues that matter to people, but he's certainly speaking to those issues in a way that also seems to positively electrify members of the British House of Lords. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, what do you even say about this? It's it's really uh, it's really beyond parody. I mean, I particularly love the way that in that clip you just played, uh, Lord Hannon, whatever his name is, like the way he talks about the working class, like they're sort of this exotic foreign tribe or something. I think that's uh, I think that's extraordinary, and it kind of tells you everything you need to know about the uh, the outlook on display here. I think it's an incredible metaphor for the I don't know, maybe it's necessarily contradictory. It's about the disconnect and the connection that. Polly ever has. He's a conservative, very much part of the conservative party in the inner circle, but also been kind of to the side of it, right? Or at least kind of painting, making his own brand and building his own thing adjacent to it, or at least projecting that image such that not only paint himself as an outsider, but he's able to maybe credibly, just credibly enough, project the idea that he is an outsider such that people who feel like everyone's fucked them over believe that they found some sort of salvation in him. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that conservatives, I mean, what you just played and, you know, to some extent, I think what seems to be coming out of the conservative convention, I mean, conservatives believe that they just have this kind of like they've they've broken the code, they've hacked the code, they've got, you know, they've got their, their finger on the pulse of the masses or something. I mean, that's just, uh, you know, they're 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 drunk on their own rhetoric at this point. I mean, I do think Polly Evera. Uh, to date has been quite politically effective. He's managed to kind of, I think, rein in some of his goofier tendencies, some of the, the, the sort of more extremely online tendencies that are dooming someone like Ron DeSantis in the United States at the moment. You know, we're, we're seeing more of the Pierre Polyevra who just talks incessantly about the cost of living and less of the one who, you know, stages campaign events around buying shawarma with Bitcoin and that sort of thing. Having said that, I mean, there is a cost of living crisis. And I think Polyevra you know, he's not very specific about anything, right? He talks about the gatekeepers. He talks about the working class, the working people, all this kind of stuff. You know, people who make things. I think I've heard him use that uh, that exact phraseology that the, uh, you know, our Tory Lord friend used just now. But I mean, I think any opposition leader who is reasonably effective would probably have some kind of a lead in the polls at this point. This may be a more long-term thing, but even if it is, I don't think that means that a majority or even a sizable plurality of the Canadian electorate is really on board for the kinds of things that a prime minister, Pierre Polyevra, would seek to do. But they don't have to be, right? Like, that that's the thing, is they don't have to be on board with what he would seek to do. You just, you know, that's what the difference between campaigning and governing. They just have to be on board for giving him a chance because they like the cut of his jib or what have you. Well, that's that's yeah. right. And actually, something else I'd say here is I think one of the reasons the liberals haven't been particularly effective against Polly ever when he's talking about inflation and things like that is because they, they honestly, I mean, they basically buy the same economic philosophy that he does. And, you know, this is where Polly ever is a hypocrite, because if he was prime minister, the idea that he wouldn't just be like smashing the exact same buttons the liberals are doing, it's possible that if he'd have been prime minister during COVID, there wouldn't have been quite the same level of public spending. I, I'm i not even sure that that's true. But I mean, Christia Freeland, uh, the minister of finance, has come out and said that, you know, uh, too much public spending is uh, inflationary. So we need to, you know, we need to have fiscal restraint. I am very mindful of the importance of not pouring fiscal fuel 
on the flames of inflation. Which is exactly the philosophy that Pierre Polyevra adheres to as well. So, you know, once you've signed up for that, as the liberals have, you know, you're kind of in a bit of a bind when someone runs against you and uh, says, well, public spending is to blame. All this public spending is the reason why the cost of living is so high. It's the reason we have inflation. Well, when the liberal minister of finance has spent months saying that exact same thing, it's going to be kind of hard to run against that. So I think the liberals, to some extent, are in a, a you know, this is a problem of their own making. Yeah. So, I mean, Paul ever has in significant part, he's managed to tap into the Maxime Bernier crowd without, you know, while keeping a lot of the more overtly, much of the more overtly hateful and white supremacist stuff, like, out of sight. Like, I mean, that does not, like, he does not talk about, I don't, like, he does not dog whistle in the same way. But one minority that apparently, not, you know, is once again popular to pick on is LGBTQ2S plus people. So in addition to all the aforementioned headlines about, you know, the traction of the Conservative Party is getting, there were a lot of headlines, like, you know, this did make the front pages about the policies that were adopted at the Conservative Party convention. Now, policies adopted in a part of a official party policy does not necessarily mean that they're going to be part of a campaign platform. It's like a, it's almost like a public consultation, like when a government does a public consultation, like they'll, maybe it'll inform it and it'll be used to justify things they wanted to do anyway or ignore it if they don't. There are a number of problematic ones, a couple in particular both of which passed. One, a conservative government will protect children by prohibiting life-altering medicinal or surgical interventions on minors under 18 to treat gender confusion or dysphoria. The other being, the conservative party believes that women are entitled to the safety, dignity, and privacy of single-sex spaces, e.g. prisons, shelters, locker rooms, washrooms, and the benefits of women-only categories, e.g. sports awards, grants, scholarships. Both of those passed, but I did find it interesting that the first one, against gender-affirming care, passed with a smaller majority than the latter did. It passed with 69%, which is actually one of the lower margins by which any policy resolutions passed, whereas the latter passed with 87% in favor. And I feel like there's something to be learned from that slight difference, particularly in terms of this, what I thought was actually a really good, quick, passionate speech from a doctor in Nova Scotia who spoke out against the ban on uh, providing gender-affirming care. My name is Dr. Lisa Bonang. I'm a family physician in Central Nova. I rise to speak against this policy. As a family physician, part of what I do is determine competency, capacity for consent, and age alone does not determine the ability to consent. This policy stands against the values of our party to embrace freedom and bodily autonomy. A vote for this is voting against what you say you are all against for, and it's pure hypocrisy. By framing it as a matter of bodily autonomy, that was actually really smart because she would have known that a few minutes later they would be voting on a, a motion or a policy proposal around vaccines and saying that people ought to have control over their own body and, think, and what happens to it and really put the – yeah, really you know, pointed out the hypocrisy and it seems like that may have made the dent. And I think that's really interesting and really – I don't know what exactly to learn from that. Well, I'll just note that Polly Ever was asked about this when he was visiting Nanaimo earlier this week, and his response was uh, notably pretty evasive. Mm -hmm. You know, he wouldn't he wouldn't say whether he's going to run on this or not. Uh, he said, we've just got a whole book of new policy proposals passed through the convention. I'll be studying them carefully and talking with our caucus members on those policies. And then when you've had a chance to do our homework, we'll have more to say. So, you know, it's a, a pretty absurd uh, evasion there. I mean, I would be surprised, I have to say, if Polly Everett did run on this stuff. And I think as long as he can maintain a lead in the polls, you know, social conservatives are not going to, you know, necessarily be a, be a problem for him. 
But there's no getting around the fact that, uh, you know, this is where the energy, much of the energy anyway, the grassroots energy on the right is at the moment, uh, even though it's a tremendous electoral liability, right? I mean, I will say as somebody who used to, you know, cover the right, uh, particularly in Western Canada a lot when I was at Press Progress, you know, I've spent hours listening to social conservatives talking to one another. And I mean, they are by and large uh, convinced that the majority of people actually agree with them. This is one of the reasons they're so absolutely relentless in pursuing this kind of thing. Uh, it's because they think that, you know, pronouns, drag time, story hour, whatever the sort of uh, right-wing bogeyman of the week is, uh, they think that uh, the majority of people actually uh, agree with them. And it's just, you know, uh, you know, some like minuscule liberal elite at the top that's imposing this on, on everybody else. And that's one of the things that gives them the confidence to so kind of doggedly pursue this stuff. Lord Hannon has another insight, which I think is actually genuinely interesting, speaking about, speaking of Richie Sunak, speaking about why Trump, you know, is, people see him as the proper conservative when he's actually, or his run obviously to the left of some of the other Republicans. I think it's because we live in an age when the vibes trump the policies. I think that's an actually, I mean, it's not an original observation, but I think that's a really good way of putting it. And I feel, also feel it's a good way of explaining even if you imagine the Canadian populace at large is not on board with what Pierre Proliev would offer, they are on board with what he is selling. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is there to help you build your business, whether you're an entrepreneur or managing a growing brand or just trying to expand on a hobby. They make it incredibly easy to make a functional, beautiful, and engaging website. Luke, do you have a website? Uh, I do not. That's probably an oversight on my part. I think it, I do think you should get a website. If I were starting a website for myself right now, I would probably give Squarespace a shot. It's got flexible website templates. And once you fill in the content, you can switch it up, customize your looks, suit your needs and needs and tastes. And they have you know built-in analytics tools. So don't, don't, I guess you don't necessarily have to get yourself set up on Google Analytics. So having that built-in is pretty good. And you can check site visits, where sales are coming from, if you happen to want to sell your book directly. And you can build a marketing strategy based on what's most popular. Head to squarespace.com slash CanadaLand for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, enter promo code CanadaLand to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. Luke, as you know, on the show, we like to duly note things. Uh, today, I would like to note duly the massive E. coli outbreak in Calgary, uh, which is something that I frankly, I have to admit, I hadn't been paying close attention to until I still saw Andre Picard's column in the Globe and Mail. He's their health columnist, and he's really great. And he's really great at getting people to pay attention to things. The horrific food poisoning of Calgary children underscores the unraveling of public health in Canada. He puts it in perspective, which he says, which he feels that media has done a poor job of in Canada, and explaining that, like, this is a big, big deal. This There hasn't been a, an E. coli outbreak this big in Canada since Walkerton. It, this is way bigger than anything you normally see. The numbers go up every day, but as of this morning, it's something like over something 250-ish children, various daycare centers, uh, all part of the same chain in Calgary, who appear to have been gotten sick from uh, like this one central kitchen that uh, they all used. You know, E. coli, you think of it as just like, you know, diarrhea or whatever. Some people, uh, something has around a couple dozen children have gotten seriously ill. They're bringing in more dialysis machines into Calgary to help these kids. And for some of them, given the number of people who've been infected overall, it's likely that at least a few of them will have to be on dialysis machines for the rest of their life. Like this is a very large, very unusual public health outbreak of the kind we don't typically see. 
And yet the provincial government was weirdly quiet about it for like almost for like a whole week. They were not, they literally offered like thoughts and prayers. That was actually the, they, I, I thought we were beyond actually using that exact line, but Premier Daniel Smith and Health Minister Adriana Lagrange were tweeting literal thoughts and prayers, not having a press conference or anything. I just want to read one passage in this column where Picard wrote, Despite the magnitude of this problem, we have yet to hear a peep from Alberta's chief medical officer of help, who is, checks notes, Dr. Mark Joffe. Alberta Health Services seems to be content with releasing a daily count of the hospitalized and basic information telling parents what to do if their children fall ill. Meanwhile, both Premier Daniel Smith and Provincial Minister of Health Adrian Lagrange have been sending thoughts and prayers to parents. ARG. He spells it A-R-G-H. That's the globe way to spell ARG. On top of this, what I thought was kind of remarkable was the day that column came out, they did eventually hold a press conference, uh, the health minister and Dr. Joffe. You know, and they were asked, like, why haven't you said anything yet? Joffe said this. At this point, we felt that it it, it was prudent and uh, and appropriate for us to appear here and to, to speak to Albertans and to answer your questions. But uh, we didn't feel that there was urgency to do that up until this point. He actually said that we didn't feel there was urgency, which the help Lagrange shortly after said, like, I believe what he meant when he said that he didn't feel it was urgent was that it, it was urgent, it meant that it has been very urgent from the very beginning and it continues to be urgent. And then he later had to send a follow-up statement to media from the CBC saying like, oh, no, the priority was getting First and foremost, getting people looked after and then to provide the public with a fulsome update on the situation, which is just the quintessential Canada thing of, you know, we'll tell you when we feel like it, if we feel like it. Duly noted. And Luke, what would you like to know, Duly, today? Well, apologies uh, for bringing in an American story here, but uh, this was on my mind recently because I was writing about it. But I do think it's interesting and has a wider provenance. This is a story in Politico by uh, the reporter Daniel Lipman. Biden books are still bombing. The current president still isn't quite the publishing house's dream that his predecessor was. And there's some absolutely eye-popping statistics uh, in this story. So it begins by noting that the book called Shattered Inside Hillary Clinton's Doomed Campaign from um, came out in 2016. That was from NBC's Jonathan Allen and Amy uh, Parnas. Uh, that sold more than 125,000 copies. Uh, it was on the New York Times bestseller list. It, you know, there was a multi-stop uh, national book tour. This was just w- one of many, many examples of Trump-era books, a few of them quite good, I think, some quite mediocre, and many of them just absolutely terrible and lacking in insight. But regardless, just absolutely uh, eye-popping numbers. The Biden presidency, on the other hand, has uh, you know been the exact opposite. The numbers are eye-popping for the opposite reason. They're unbelievably low. So Parnas and Allen wrote a follow-up book of sorts for a successor called uh, Lucky How Joe Biden Barely Won the Presidency. That sold less than 10,000 copies since it came out in March of 2021. And there are some even more astonishing numbers here. So the uh, what I think is the official biography of Jill Biden has sold less than 2,500 copies. The Fight of His Life Inside Joe Biden White House. That's by a a writer from Politico. Less than 5,000 copies. Uh, The Long Alliance, The Imperfect Union of Joe Biden and Barack Obama. Less than 1,500 copies. It goes on and on. And you know, I think this story is just interesting on its own terms. I think it's a, an interesting little tidbit of reporting there. But the reason I bring it up is because I think that it speaks to something much wider that's, I think, probably almost certainly applicable in Canada as well. And that's uh, that, you know, the the ambient mood, you know, what, what was the thing that Lord Hannon uh, said earlier about? It's not policy, it's vibes. Uh, you know, the vibes right now are not even particularly political. There is a mixture of kind of 
cynicism and uh, exhaustion, uh, you know, I think from the Trump era, frankly, from the pandemic, uh, from a number of other things, which just mean that people are a lot less engaged with the news, a lot less engaged with politics than they were before. There was, you know, a good five or six years where everything, all the dials were turned up to 11, everything was at a fever pitch. And the ambient mood right now is is really something quite different. There, you know, there's a lot of, I think, just kind of ambivalence and a general desire to disengage. And I guess just to tie this to what uh, we were saying off the top, I mean, I do think that that generally redounds to the the benefit of the right, even if there isn't a groundswell of support for, uh, you know, the right's political program. Duly noted. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Journalists and education workers at TVO walked off the job this morning. Pokeroo and Steve Pakin on the picket lines, Erica? It is possible. Well, only one of them showed up to the TVO picket line, so far as I know. But then, I guess, well, you don't tend to see both of them at the same time. Employees went on strike on August 21st, and this week, union and management met for the first time since. Although they have remained in touch via email, including one message from TVO's lawyer, which, TVO tells me, cautioned the union to ensure that all public comments, including from its members, were accurate and precise. On Tuesday afternoon, I went up and visited the picket line. thought it was time to check it out, in part because I can't actually recall the last time there was like a, a media strike in Canada. I mean, all I can think of was like the Chronicle Herald with the Halifax newspaper back in 2016, 2017. A lot of people are drawing comparisons to the work stoppage at the CBC in 2005, that, but that was a lockout, not a strike. So it's unusual to actually go on strike, especially in media. Call me off guard when they called it. A work stoppage is sort of like when you have like a civil lawsuit. It very rarely 
actually reaches a trial, even rarer to get to a point where a judge is rendering a verdict, is the sort of the threat of the thing happening that forces the parties to get together and just find some solution to have to avoid all of that. So I thought they were just going to, like everyone else, just tiptoe up to the brink of a strike and not actually take the action. But they did. It's sort of it's a decade or more of pent-up frustration and anger and concern for the future of a public broadcaster that in some ways offers a preview of what a defunded CBC could look like and that it's something that's been whittled down for decades to the point where it, other than children's programming, it, there's literally just like one show, one regular ongoing series for adults produced in-house, plus a lot of commissioned documentaries. I feel like I need to pull back first and say like, what is TVO? Because I imagine listeners outside of Ontario have, might have a vague idea, but don't quite understand. Luke, how would you descri- how would you describe TVO for listeners outside of Ontario? Well, when I was growing up, it was the home of Pokeroo and uh, and the crawl space with Patty and Joe. I don't know what they're up to these days, but I would describe TVO. I mean, you know, it's an educational, uh, you know, public service, but. I mean, I think it produces some of the best current affairs mm-hmm. and, and, you know, public interest programming uh, that's being made anywhere in Canada today. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's really fantastic. It's one of the only places you can go for really in-depth, uh, you know, discussions of politics and, uh, and public policy. It is, and it has this weird distinction of being a TV network that is basically held up by the single show, being The Agenda with Steve Pakin, which is a nightly hour-long current affairs show. And they also, you know, publish stuff online. But in terms of what's actually on, it's that and a lot of commissioned documentaries. TVO, it's kind of like, it's more like PBS than CBC is. It originally started in the late 60s, early 70s, uh, the idea being that it would be an educational broadcaster, that it would eventually, the premier at the time, Bill Davis, had this idea that eventually electronic learning would eventually replace teachers in classrooms, and he wanted something that you could show to students in classrooms. Uh, So it started from that. It's more little higher brow than CBC. It's definitely more like yeah, like PBS in the States. It doesn't run ads. It's therefore more reliant on government funding. And there's not a whole lot like it. Like, there's still the Knowledge Network in BC, still te- which I don't know if it produces its own thing. There's Tele-Quebec in Quebec. But it is also weird in that it's this thing that, you know, it's something we we remember from being kids as well. And it was one of this rare things, this vestige of a time when there was an effort to actually create or consider a distinct Ontario identity? Because Ontario is kind of this weird non-entity within Canada. It's like the definition of middle Canada. There's no, there's not, there's so little that's distinct about it and that, that forms any sort of identity. And it was part of the offshoot of that project. Hence, it being one of the few things that Ontarians, that Ontarians have to explain to the rest of Canada, oh no, this is, this is the shared experience we have that you probably also don't have. But as a lot of the signs on the picket line said, you know, you can't pay your rent with nostalgia. They had, you know, lots of drawings and paintings of, like, all the different kids' show characters. Well, my feelings about this are are pretty uncomplicated. My understanding is that while there technically have been wage increases for Canadian Media Guild members over the past 10 years, I mean, they've been below the rate of inflation. So I think the the average salary, the median salary, I'm forgetting which, is something like 15% less than what it used to be. So essentially, you know, there's there's been a pay cut. As I understand it, there are also issues with kind of employees, workers being kept on contract kind of indefinitely, uh, which means they don't get benefits, they don't get job security. So that's, you know, the classic employer strategy. I mean, it's like almost a form of like quasi outsourcing where you don't give people the benefits of being employees, and though functionally they are, and, you know, the enterprise wouldn't exist without them. So, I mean, what can you even say here? I really admire the work that uh, everyone at TVO does, and management owes them a contract that reflects, uh, you know, their important and vital work. 
I mean, wages are obviously an issue, but the, the other issue, the bigger one is, is that the government or whoever is on the other side, and that's something I actually found just talking to people at the picket line, is they weren't even sure whether basically they're bargaining with management or with the government or both, which is itself a kind of a strange thing. After wages, the other sticking point is that they, the management wants to get rid of certain protections for contract workers. So at TVO, as in many other unionized workplaces, there are rules to try to keep people from being kept on contracts indefinitely. That is to say, if you've been on contract for a certain amount of time, you're automatically converted to a permanent employee if they keep you on past a certain point. The fear and concern of the union, which is the, uh, the Canadian Media Guild, and I should say that CMG is a local of CWA Canada, and most Canadian employees are members of CWA Canada, but not of CMG. The concern is that the government's intention or management's intention is to have a permanent workforce of contractors and to have a large number of people who are kept on contract indefinitely with no path to employment. And the union has said, although TVO management takes issue with how it's been explained, the union has said that the management has indicated they don't intend to hire people permanently ever again, at least not on the education side. And this, I'm bringing this up because it actually goes back to something else that Lord Hannon of King's Clear said on that same episode of the National Post full comment podcast, where he does one of the, I wouldn't say it's a mask off thing, but he does say a quiet part out loud in a way that conservatives are not typically explicit about. And so the kind of corporatist message of the left doesn't really connect in the way that it would have done. You know, I, I look at my kids who range in age from seven to 21. I don't think any of them is ever going to have a job, as, as you and I understood that word in the 20th century, right? I think they're going to go through life constantly reskilling and, and freelancing and adapting to accelerating technology. And so trade union-based parties of the left really seem literally to belong, as they do, to, to another century. <laughs> you, yeah, like conservative policy is often, that is exactly what conservative policy points to, but they don't often come out and say, no, we don't think people will ever have jobs again. And that's just, that's just fine. <laughs> well, I, I think that's a, an extraordinary comment and it offers some real insight, I think, into the right-wing imagination. I mean, we, I should, I, I'd be remiss here if I didn't point out that uh, Bill Morneau, the former liberal minister of finance, you know, I think in 2017, 2018, something like that, said uh, much the same thing. We know that job churn is going to happen more. People are going to move from jobs more rapidly. Many of the jobs will be short-term. You know, young people need to get used to the job churn, deal with it. It's an extraordinary comment that because it, what it really what it's really saying is, I mean, first of all, his kids are going to be fine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that goes without saying they probably have a freedom to sort of freelance and sort of surf the job churn that others probably don't. But the way that the logic of that is so obviously just uh, inverted because where, you know, the premise is, OK, there's this job churn, there's all this precarious work. And, and that's why trade unions are irrelevant, right? Not that's why we need trade unions. And I mean, that really speaks to the way that across much of the right today, and I think for many liberals, certainly neoliberals as well, the market is just this kind of force of nature. You know, it's not something that we can intervene in. I mean, he said, you know, there's that there was that kind of throwaway phrase about adapting to the accelerating pace of technology or something like that, which I think, you know, uh, really is just sort of a stand-in for, uh, for market forces in his comments. The market is not something you can intervene in, you know, uh, precarious work, you know, low wages. That's not the result of, you know, a very deliberate political project. That's just some kind of like organic development. And all we can do is, is adapt uh, 
ourselves to it, all we can do is lower our expectations, lower our demands, minimize the demands we make of our employers and our politicians, etc. And yeah, that's just so obviously uh, the exact opposite. His reason for saying uh, trade unions are irrelevant and belong to a previous century, which he says reflects a corporatist mindset, I'm not really even sure what he means there. But I mean, that's all the the, the reason why we need uh, solidarity, why we need trade unions, why we need uh, social cooperation. He's got it in you know the exact reverse. And I think for TVO, I mean, if, as for the workers, it's as much about this. It's absolutely about the future of TVO, but I think for them, my understanding is it's also very much about the future of work because. If a crown corporation can't provide permanent jobs, yeah, that's if right. the government, like these are these are people who literally, when they sign up, they have to swear an oath to the, I guess it's the king now. They have to like they're members of the members of the civil service. They actually yeah. have to do that. If they can't provide permanent jobs, if they're moving to gig work, what the hell does that mean for anyone else? And that's Shortcuts this week. Thanks for joining me, Luke. Always a pleasure, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. I'm Jonathan Goldsby. We are on X at Canada Land. People can email me at jonathan.canadaland.com. Like Jesse, I promise to at least read everything you send and be grateful for you having sent it to me, uh, even if I don't respond. Uh, Where can people find you, Luke? Oh, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, Sorry, I refuse (laughs) to call it X, uh, at Luke W. Savage. Uh, Everything I write and publish is on there. This episode is produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our managing editor is Annette Jofo, and our editor-in-chief is Karen Pugliese. The music is by so-called syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. Also, Canada Land has just joined YouTube. Again, we've launched a new channel called Canada Land Podcasts, and we'll be releasing a series of curated collections over the course of the next month. They'll include favorite episodes from across the network and from across our archive, exploring themes that we've returned to again and again over the last almost 10 years. We've also recorded new video intros for the episodes, in which we wax on like we're Scorsese presenting treasure titles from the Iranian cinematic canon. The first collection features stories on broken systems, and if you're curious which of Canada's many broken systems made the cut, head on over to the Canada Land Podcast YouTube channel. Be sure to smash that subscribe button when you get there. If you value this podcast, please support us. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism, and as a supporter, you'll get premium access to all of our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You will also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on Candleland merch, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events, and more than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis, and you'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. Come join us now. Click the link in your show notes or go to candleland.com join. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Thank you for supporting Candleland. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.